Hello and welcome to the PhD Life Raft podcast. I'm Emma Brzezinski and today I am talking to the wonderful Devon Price about their book Laziness Does Not Exist. This is a fantastic book that I think speaks directly to PhD students. It has chapter titles such as You Don't Have to Be an Expert in Everything and Your Achievements Are Not Your Worth. And in this conversation, we talk about the pernicious workaholic culture within academia. And we also talk about how checking in with your own core values can act as an antidote. So I do hope you enjoy this episode. good evening well actually it's evening for me I don't it's not evening for you (laughs) no but you know what I'm it's the middle of the afternoon so I'm already kind of thinking about my evening plans I'm mentally done for the day for sure I love that and that so sets us off on what we're going to talk about today um so thank you so much for being here I I and I have just read your fantastic book and I cannot wait for you to um tell everybody more about it um but before we do that we always start with asking people about their own journey um into and and through the PhD so can you tell us a little bit about how that was for you sure yeah so I knew relatively young that I wanted to be an academic or I thought I wanted to be an academic I was I was really into psychology as a, you know, 15, 16 year old. I was on the debate team and just in my research for whatever the debate topic of the month, every month was, I was just always coming up against social science research and experiments. And I just thought, oh, I really want to be one of those people in a lab doing experiments on people and figuring out why they behave the way they behave. Amazing. so I, um, I picked up a book from the American Psychological Association called Getting In, The Complete Guide to Graduate School Success. I was reading that when I was like 18. <laughs> and, um, and I went to this um, panel at when I was looking at potential colleges and universities to go to um, about getting into graduate school in psychology. And someone, a professor there, gave some advice that was life-changing advice for me as someone who came from kind of a lower middle class to working class background, um, they said, if you pay to go to graduate school, you're doing it wrong. But if you play your cards right, you should be getting paid to go to graduate school. And I was like, hold on a second. Whoa, okay, this is going to actually be possible for me. Um, Because up until that point, I thought it was maybe not actually attainable. Um, So I started planning from that period on really concretely, okay, I need to volunteer in this many labs during undergrad, I need to take these classes, I need to make sure I'm kind of like grooming potential letter of recommendation writers out of my favorite professors by taking their classes a bunch of times and really kind of talking a lot in class. I was very strategic and single-minded about it. Wow. Yeah. Um, And so then I finished, uh, I graduated from The Ohio State University at at 20 years old um, and applied to graduate school. I applied to like, I think 20 20 programs and I got into 
four or five. Wow. Um, and then I came here to Loyola University, Chicago, which is where I still teach now as a, as an assistant professor. And um, I pretty quickly realized it wasn't exactly what I thought it would really be. <laughs> um, I loved reading about research and reading about theories for why people behaved the way they behaved. But when I got to look under the hood and see how some of these tenured professors did research, I saw a lot of what we now today call questionable research practices. Um, this isn't to say anybody was doing anything that was against the norms of the time. No. What people were doing were, was completely normal and was preached at conferences. Hmm. But it was things like p-hacking, um, so basically doing little tips and tricks to try and round your results into significance and testing lots of different variables and only reporting the ones that had significant effects. Things like that, that we now recognize as really kind of gaming the system. But again, it was completely normal at the time. Um, and I want to be careful about how I talk yeah, about yeah, that because I'm not yeah. accusing anyone of anything. But it was still really dispiriting for me. Yes. Yes. So so I, I go through graduate school. I really um, push my way through as quickly as, as possible, learning to kind of play a very strategic game of study the things that you know have a good chance of success um, rather than necessarily something that's too lofty and ambitious and big picture about social issues that, you know, um, might not actually pay off. Um, and then I, I finished my, my PhD when I was 25 years old. Um, and mm -hmm. I immediately, like right after defending, came down with a terrible fever Hmm. Um, that didn't go away for like nine months afterward. I had just been going, going, going since I was about, you know, 17, 18 years old through to 25 with this hmm. goal in mind. Hmm. And then I found out what it wasn't, it wasn't exactly what I thought it was going to be. And then it, it made me really physically sick and I had a heart murmur and I kind of talk about all that stuff in the book. Yes. Um, yes. But yeah, it was a big uh, wake up call. I kind of had a, um, I had a very literal quarter life crisis, I guess. Yes, 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 yes. And so it kind of, well, this takes us right into, as you say, that where where your kind of your interest and in where the book starts in terms of what, from some points of view, would be seen as a success story in terms of like, wow, look at you, you've got through that, you did all of that, amazing. But actually, you ended up really very ill, um, and then was questioning what was what was going on and how how these things were working out um and ended up then writing this book laziness does not exist oh how i love that title <laughs> um so can you then um just talk us through the, the, the big um thing that you talk about is the laziness lie can you tell us about what you're what you're exploring there yeah so the laziness lie is a set of beliefs that's really deeply embedded in our culture about the value of work and the kind of evil and mistrust we have to approach uh laziness mm. um it's a really kind of gloomy view of human nature basically and mm. i think it's directly responsible for why i was such a workaholic mm. going into academia and why academia operates the way that it does, as well as most workplaces. Mm. And uh, the laziness lie, the way I talk about it, it has three main tenets. They're kind of unspoken beliefs that we absorb through our culture. 
And the first tenet is that your worth is defined by your productivity, basically that you have to kind of earn your right to be alive through <sighs> achievement and making money and wrapping up uh, accolades and things like that. Mm. The second tenet is that you can't trust your needs and limits, any feeling that you have, any weakness, illness. Those are just things you're supposed to push away and ignore and white knuckle your way through because they're mm. a threat to your productivity. Mm. And then the final tenet of the laziness lie is that there's always more that you could be doing. So even if you are someone like me who was playing by the rules of that game and was kind of succeeding, at least on paper, um, I still, I wasn't doing enough volunteer work. I wasn't <sighs> exercising enough. I wasn't, you know, I didn't have a full enough and impressive enough social life. You know, um, it, it, there's an impossible litany of expectations that none of us can actually meet because the the game is set up for us to lose from this outside of it yes and i am sure those three tenants are gonna absolutely resonate with people who are listening to this um because they are of a very strong flavor in academia with your productivity, you can't, don't trust your feelings. <laughs> um, and there's always more you could be doing. How many PhD students have I spoken to who's like, well, I'm just not doing enough. I'm not reading enough. I haven't done enough. Um, and all that that, all that, that causes. Um, and so you talk, you talk about the way in which this is fabricated. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that in terms of how, how, how we can, can understand the creation of this? Yeah, sure. So I trace it back to the Puritans um, who had this really, it was really viewed as a very abnormal belief system at the time, which is part of why they left England for, um, the, you know, colonizing United States. Uh, <laughs> they, they really believed that um, if you were super productive and driven, that was a sign that you had already been chosen for heaven. And that if someone lacked focus where they were, you know, what we would now recognize as depressed or ADHD or just struggling from who knows what else, that was a sign that they were already damned, basically. And this even extended their views on children. Like they expected children to be completely morally upstanding, productive little adults. And they would create um, high chairs and furniture that would try to like force babies into human, into an adult human posture even, because they thought being weak was just evil, basically. Needing help was like evil. Um, and so when they came over to the, to the you know, being colonized uh, United States, that worldview was very useful uh, to adopt as a broader part of American culture, because it justified enslaving people. If people yes. are fundamentally evil and unmotivated and you have to force them to work in order to save their souls, suddenly you have a justification for taking people's freedom away and taking their children away. And it also really uh, was a useful way to uh, kind of exploit uh, indentured servants and uh, poor white laborers too. And um, following abolition, it was a great tool for pitting those two groups against one another and telling, for example, working class white people in the US, oh, we shouldn't pay reparations to uh, freed Black Americans because they're just lazy and looking for a handout and those kinds of things. And unfortunately, those same beliefs have been with us. Um, and certainly, we've really transmitted them as Americans to you know the whole planet, basically. Um, the shape that it takes always morphs a little bit as our culture and our economy starts to look a little bit different. But we're basically still just basting in this belief that most people 
don't want to work and don't want to do productive things and you can't trust people and you can't trust yourself. You can't listen to your own body and your own emotions. We just need to constantly be driving to do more and more and more. And it's really tainted the Academy as well as most workplaces. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Because of this, this sense of, as you say, I think especially that not listening to yourself, that actually your, your body is worthless, that actually it's your breath in the academy and you just keep going, you keep pushing on through um, and don't, don't listen to yourself. And, and of course, we know that that ends up in all sorts of difficulties for people. Um, I was really interested too, you were just talking there about um, the way in which um, the it, it was a useful tool to oppress people with. Um, and I was really interested, you talk about in the book, the way in which you, um, the way in which people perhaps who are, don't have privilege, therefore feel the need to work even harder, that they kind of, that, and, and so it, it, they buy into the system even harder. Yeah, yeah, because you're in such a precarious spot. I mean, we all are under our current economic system. If you can't work, uh, your your ability to be alive and have any degree of comfort or even just life is, is under threat. But mm-hmm. it's doubly true if you are a person of color, if you're a trans person, if you have mental illness, uh, anything that... Uh, puts you even more on the margins. If you grew up in poverty, um, for the book, I interviewed a lot of kind of workaholics and people who were severely burnt out. And almost all of them came from either a working class background where they really knew what it was like to be on the edge of starving or being homeless, or they were a racial minority or were um, queer or were in some other way, often multiple ways, living on the edge. And that puts you in a situation where you never trust your success. You know, we talk a lot in the academy about imposter syndrome, mm. but it's not really an individual neurosis the way we talk about it. It's recognizing that you are in a system that doesn't recognize you and doesn't respect you and that might throw you out on the curb at any moment. So unfortunately, that kind of paranoia and workaholism that we talk about as kind of an individual compulsion, it makes sense from where people are sitting, which is really the saddest part about it. Um, And, you know, black American families, at least for for decades have been talking about how they raise their kids, that you have to work twice as hard, at least to get half as far as a white colleague. And, um, And that's unfortunately the lived reality for a lot of people that are in that kind of position or in similar positions. And so it's really, really hard to escape because how do you unlearn a paranoia that isn't actually paranoia? It's recognizing yes. the situation you're in. Exactly, exactly. And it serves that system, doesn't it? Nobody's going to say to you, no, don't try so hard. <laughs> right. Yes. Yeah. People have so much to gain off of you not recognizing, you know, what your potential really is and the respect that you actually deserve. And we're such a pyramid scheme in academia where we yes. really thrive on having insecure graduate students who are just fighting, fighting, fighting to claw their way to a secure position that will, for many of them, never actually arrive. Yes, yes, it's, yeah, absolutely. And and I think recognising what I th- think is so brilliant about 
your book is the systemic nature of it, as you say, because, again, that's another way in which people are bound in because they think, oh, it's just me. This is just what I'm feeling. And to recognise that this is systemic, maybe then to, that can start to give a little bit of space and it'll open up a little bit of thinking um, space for people to realise that this is this is a bigger thing that's going on here. Um, so, so I, I, the, I feel like I want to draw out also the things that you're kind of that you're offering and proposing because it isn't just about recognizing and and speaking out about this that you're also talking about what's important and what we should kind of um embrace um you talk about wasting time as a human need um and the importance of rest and being uh, you, you say laziness helps us to be creative so can you talk to us a little bit about your learnings of kind of other ways of being and um yeah ways in which how to work less can you can you help us with that sure yeah so the first thing the first place to really start i think is that we set out um to meet expectations that are not reality based and this is something that our bosses or our mentors set out for us and also expectations that we set out for ourselves we're not robots we're not um carpenter ants we can't keep going constantly. That's just not in the nature of how the human body or the human brain works. We're like, uh, I saw a, a tweet about this recently that framed it in kind of a new way for me that like, you're a very large carnivorous mammal, you know? Cats don't run around constantly working. They sleep most of the day because that's just part of the biology of a large kind of apex predator. Um, nice. And that's true for humans too. We have to really conserve our energy. And we know from decades of industrial organizational psychology research that in there's no workplace in the world where people just sit down and work producing uh, something tangible for eight hours per day. Even if you force people to stay in an office that long, they're going to work about three to four hours per day um, on average. And the rest of that time, they're going to spend daydreaming and pretending to work and mm. socializing and organizing their pens and all of these other things, because that's really what our brains need. We're kind of meant, quote unquote, to be like scanning our environment and engaging with others and digesting the information that we take in. And that's just particularly true for any really intellectually heavy or creative work. You need um, what in psychology we call the incubation period, where you're not focusing on trying to force the insight or force the creativity. It's just working in the background of your mind. And that's why we have our best ideas in the shower or on vacation, um, because our brains are still doing work, even when we're not forcing ourselves to produce something. And unfortunately, most of us still put a schedule and a set of expectations around ourselves that assumes we could work eight hours straight if only we had the willpower. And that's just never going to happen. Mm. Mm. And, th and that's the thing. And then beat, beat ourselves up when that doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, yeah. And so it, and so it goes on, but I, th I think this, this sense of recognizing the importance of rest, of incubation, of downtime, um, as productive if 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 that's probably not the right term is it because i don't want to buy in again to this this um 
these ideas of productivity but as generative can we say generative Mm, I don't know I like generative (laughs) generative time um I love that I love that um and yeah in in order to be creative and full human beings thank you so much for that I I kind of I there there is so there's so much more I could ask you about and I really would recommend this book um talking it talks about procrastination and elements like that which again I know is a is a big thing for PhD students um and so I really would recommend it um I'm aware of time and I want to have time to ask you the unfair question that I ask everybody (laughs) which is around do you have a kind of a, a top tip which, you know, this is deep and beautifully crafted work, so I feel embarrassed asking it. But, um, yeah, what what could people take away from, from this and put into action, I guess, really? Yeah, yeah, I think this piece of advice is, it distills a lot of the principles of the book as a whole, so it's not, it doesn't feel too, like, you know, a quick and dirty tip that kind of misses the, the meat of it. Right. Um, and what it comes down to is thinking about what you value most in life um, what what do you believe in? What what's important to you? What experiences in life make you feel the most alive, or as if time is slowing down? Like when you think back on your life moments that really stay with you, um, the moments that make you say, like, if all of life were like this, it would be amazing. Um, think using that those kinds of questions to really identify what's important to you, and then look at where the disjoint is between that and how you actually spend your day-to-day life. Um, And what can you do to get those two things to be more in alignment with each other? Because of course we all have, you know, doing the laundry and running errands and answering email. And those are not peak life experiences for most of us, but um, there are probably moments, you know, playing with your kids, moments of play and exploration, walks around your neighborhood where you see something beautiful or unexpected that tell you a little bit more about what potential your life really has to be in alignment with your values and what you really believe in. So, so take a look at what matters the most to you in your life. Look at how obligations and um, routines in your life are kind of detracting from that. And then just ask yourself, what can I stop doing? What obligations am I trying to meet just because society says I should be doing them um, that I don't actually care about and that I don't actually value? Because the more we learn to say no and disappoint people and let certain obligations drop, the more we can kind of move joyfully towards those moments that actually do really make time slow down and make everything look vivid and lush and and meaningful. I love that so much. I love that so much. And I I think, again, in, in terms of thinking about the PhD, that could be that kind of gift, right? This is an opportunity to live out those values, to immerse yourself in something that you love. Um, and oh, so I, I think those words are truly golden. Devin, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for your awesome book and for speaking out um, about all of these things and, and bringing them to awareness in a really useful um and critical way critically useful way um thank you so much and thank you all for listening thank you so much for having me